Just making a reveal. Making a reveal. Welcome to the 38th episode of Rank and Review. This episode we're returning to sci-fi scares, and this time with the theme, Man and Machines. It's also significant because I finally got my dear friend Paxton Francis to do an episode with me, and uh, I think it's going to be a good one. It's an interesting bunch of movies. As usual, I think you can expect coarse language and spoilers for the six films discussed. And as usual, I would like to warn you that there may be some coarse language. What are you going to do? Thank you for listening to Rank and Review. Please do seek us out on iTunes and on Facebook. If you could leave us a positive review on iTunes and like us on Facebook, uh, that would be good for my morale and it would be good for helping other people to find the show. Alright, that's it. I'll stop bugging you. It's time for Rank and Review, episode 38. Then it was episode 38 of Rank and Review. Episode 38. <laughs> 38. And uh, it's a historic occasion because I finally got Paxton Francis on the show. Who's like one of my closest friends. We watch movies together all the time. I knew this day would come and I'm thrilled that we finally arrived at it. And I think we have a good, uh, a good topic for you because I know you're a sci-fi freak. <laughs> I am, but I've never heard of this Paxton Francis guy. I don't know no, what you're no, talking no. about. No. You want to go under an alias to be your voice be disguised? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> No, it's been too long. I'm glad to be here. Um, yeah, we're doing a sci-fi scares again, but this time on a theme of man and machine, specifically. Mm -hmm. um, and it's an interesting list. We were just talking about it. Like, just the fact that 2001 A Space Odyssey is on the same list as RoboCop is, is weird. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I think thematically it does work, and they are, in their own way, sort of significant sci-fi movies. Yes, um, particularly in my life. I mean, people our age, yeah, right? Robocop in specific. I don't know how many people that applies to in, in the larger scope of things, but it applies to us. Back in the day when the single-digit age category would be willing and happy to subject themselves to something as horrifying as Robocop. Yeah, I think I was nine <laughs> when I broke my Robocop cherry. <laughs> Just horrifying. Traumatizing experience. So I can't remember if I force-fed this topic on you if you chose it out of the list, because I know there was a few hundred options to choose from. I chose this one. You, you showed me the list, and you narrowed it down to two or three that you thought I would enjoy. Right. So and what spoke to you one. about Man vs. Machine? Uh, well, I like most of the movies on the list a great deal, and <clears throat> I also, you and I have had debates and talks about 2001 for... <laughs> A decade or Ever. more. So with that movie on the list, I wanted to talk about it, although I think we're going to find in this podcast that we uh, we agree on 2001 a great deal more than our historical debates might lead someone to believe. <laughs> but we'll get to that. We'll get to it. When we start, actually. I haven't seen the movie yet. I've, I've heard a lot about it. You're just going to base this yeah, all on what you've yeah, heard? I've got, I've got the Coles notes here. It's, it happens in space, right? 
I'm pretty sure, although there are monkeys. <laughs> yes. Uh, have you seen Space Chimps? Because I actually get these two confused a lot. Andy Serkis? Yes. He's in Sp- yeah. He was good in that. He should have been, anyway. The six movies we are going to talk about are, as mentioned, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, one of the most seminal 80s movies ever, The Terminator. Mm, it's like... Semen. Yes, indeed. Uh, some obscure director there again, Jim Cameron, James Cameron. Yeah, I think he's done something else. Uh, <laughs> Piranha 2, I believe. Yeah, Piranha 2, that's the one. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul Verhoeven. pretty good. Actually, last time we did science fiction movies, we talked about another Paul Verhoeven movie, mm. a little ditty called Starship Troopers. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> That's yes. actually maybe more off the hook than, than RoboCop, honestly. If, if you have to watch a movie that has giant bugs that shit laser beams into space, <laughs> that's the movie for you. Yeah, if that's what you're looking for, it will mm-hmm. deliver that promise. Yeah. Uh, RoboCop, slightly different animal, but you can definitely tell the same director made it. Um, from the Wachowski siblings... Uh, the game changer, I would argue, uh, Matrix, mm-hmm. from Duncan Jones, who I talked about recently in another episode for his work in so- Source Code, um, his first feature, Moon, starring Sam Rockwell. Mm-hmm. The ever-awesome Sam Rockwell. He's, he's always good. Even if he's in a bad movie, he's good in it. You dislike iRobot so much that you're just not going to mention oh, it on God. the list. Did I, not even I mention think it? you just skipped right past yes, iRobot. Not to tip my hand too I much, we also have another movie. Yes. <laughs> Asimov, who is a you know, much treasured science fiction author, iRobot, a movie that should, for all reasons, be good. Have not been made. <laughs> is there anything you would like to say before we proceed into the rankings, my friend? No, I'm ready to rock. Let's I'm ready to talk. Let's, Let's get it. physical. Welcome to voice print identification. When you see the red light go on, would you please state in the following order. Your destination, your nationality, and your full name. Moon, American, Floyd, Haywood R. Thank you. You are cleared through voice print identification. Thank you. Quite frankly, we have had some very reliable intelligence reports that Quite a serious epidemic has broken out into claims. No, there have been some conflicting views held by some of you regarding the need for complete security. Something apparently of an unknown origin. However, I accept the need for absolute secrecy in this. This is in fact what has happened. I'm really not at liberty to discuss this. We thought it might be the upper part of some buried structure, so we excavated out on all sides, but unfortunately we didn't find anything else. It hasn't been covered up by natural erosion or other forces, it seems to have been deliberately buried. Four-million-year-old black monolith has remained completely inert, except for a single, very powerful radio emission. Three weeks ago, the American... Okay, um, we're going to go chronologically through these reviews, so starting in the tender year of 1968. The year I was born. <laughs> it's uh, Stanley Kubrick's uh, <laughs> uh, arguable masterpiece. It is a very respected work. Um, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, I've brought it up before on the podcast as sort of a movie that is uh, specific to the experience of its time. I think if you're sitting in a theater in 1968 watching 2001 A Space Odyssey it's going to just blow your brains to the back of the theater. And I totally get that. Or it won't affect you at all. Yeah. If you just don't care for sci-fi. Which I'm, I'm sure there were people like that. But anybody going to see a movie set in space that was like something they'd never seen before was... Uh, 
they got what they paid for. I absolutely understand it for that respect. And we just, just before we started recording the podcast, screened it on your, your huge TV in gorgeous Blu-ray. Yeah, just minutes ago, like, we put our clothes back on <laughs> yeah. and then we started we recording. <laughs> I'd never seen the Blu-ray transfer of the movie, and it is gorgeous. And as much as I'm not going to be saying all positive things about the movie... Mm-hmm. This, like every Kubrick movie, has an element that is just hypnotizing to it. There's something that just puts me in a trance when I'm watching a Kubrick movie, and I do find them watchable. They suck me in, even though they tend to be very slow-paced and somewhat challenging, and that is definitely true here. So please, Paxton, tell me, what do you think of 2001 A Space Odyssey, brother? You, you are right about it being mesmerizing like most of Kubrick's movies. We were discussing it while we watched actually because we've both seen it several times we we did talk while we watched the movie and this is maybe the fifth time i've seen this movie like you i'd never seen it in beautiful large screen high definition transfer and it's still gorgeous but it's four movies four distinct acts one of which is is a brilliant movie yeah (laughs) and the other three i can take or leave yeah um we were talking about the apes, right? Act one is monkeys. Primitive humans four yeah. million years ago, it's implied that this is when, when our movie starts. And we bear witness to what's presented as the first act of primate on primate murder. Weaponized aggression. Yeah, weaponized aggression. We were discussing that that's kind of silly because long before you get to the point of the, you know, semi uh, erect standing uh, proto-humans that we see uh, we know that even now chimps bludgeon each other with shit when they kill each other yeah. but I think it's the concept the it's idea. the concept we see we see uh, this first act of and, and it's also presented as the first really human act mm-hmm. right uh, of realizing I can take, take my that brackish water for myself all I have to do is use this tool in the right way and kill that other motherfucker. I'm not necessarily at the whim of my environment. I can shape my environment to help my cause, right? Um, using this bone to, as, a, as a weapon is going to help me and my tribe succeed, right? Exactly. And the monolith seems to be a harbinger of this revelation. The monolith, right. At the end of the first act, um, what did we say his name Moonwatcher Moonwatcher as he is called in the book it's never obviously they don't speak in the film <laughs> no but he's Moonwatcher in the script and he's uh, a uh, he's the monkey that is least freaked out by this monolith right he's more curious than scared he's yeah. more curious and um, so that's when the monolith is introduced if you're listening to this you've probably seen the movie skip ahead to act two four million years later when we meet the second monolith buried under the surface of the moon. This is the first of, uh, of the movies set in the future, right. right? Our space world. And it's really just about, what, 15, 20 minutes of expository dialogue and nothing else, yeah. right? A, a, a phone call to his daughter about her birthday followed by a bunch of exposition. Yeah. And spacescapes that would be, again, for the time, absolutely magnificent and still have aged quite well. We're just used to seeing stuff floating in space now, so it doesn't have that same sense of awe that I'm sure... It's comparable to, like, when we saw dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, Mm well-rendered. Like, it just gave you, I'm sure, a sense of wow that uh, I think with time is starting to get lost 
Mm-hmm. Especially because they're so protracted with the long panning Kubrick shots. They're gorgeous shots, but it just it takes a while. They are gorgeous, but I wanna you said that um we see a lot of spaceships floating around and we were talking about this too. We actually see a lot of spaceships zipping around in movies. It's kinda of refreshing to watch them just float. Drift uh, almost. Just yeah. drift through the void. Even though when Discovery's flying along it towards Jupiter, it's going very, very quickly. To us, like, yeah. it's just floating through the ink. Yeah. That that's Act Three, and yeah. that is the good part of the movie. <laughs> I think it, when you watch it, that's the part where I find myself not talking to Larry because yeah. I'm paying attention <laughs> okay. to the movie. And where the the real sort of villain of well, our, our final protagonist really and villain aren't introduced till well over an hour or at least over an hour into the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they're immediately fascinating. Like, I'm drawn right into it. And uh, that has more stakes and more sort of suspense than anything else in the movie. Um, so it's sort of a great reward for, you know, they paid off the, all of that setup. It's 144 minutes, I believe, yeah. long. It was it, two hours and 20 minutes when we, at the beginning of the credits, when yeah. we stopped it um and for me even though i understand its stature as a classic work of science fiction is a long watch i mean like uh yeah and we like skipped through the intermission and overture and we skipped through some of the uh zipping through spacing and we talked through a bunch of it i think i would probably find it difficult to sit through that movie in complete silence with someone at this point but at the same time i would say it's totally worth watching. <laughs> like, uh, you should probably, if you're into science fiction, by all means, you should watch. Or if you're into the film, right? If you're it's into the film, you should watch that. It's Kubrick. a touchstone film. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the movie says a lot, but it, more than any other movie on this list, asks a great deal of its audience. It really expects a lot from you. If you want to enjoy this movie, you have to, uh, you have to sit there. <laughs> you have to watch it. Drink it in. Yeah. Even though that means often just staring at static nature shots. I mean, they're beautiful static nature shots, but um, there's a lot of waiting. Ninety, Over 90 minutes we were when it's revealed that this is, in fact, a horror movie yeah. <laughs> that belongs on Larry's list, and that's that's when Hal, the, compu- the sentient computer that lives aboard the ship that's flying to Jupiter, commits his first act of true humanity and kills a person yeah. to uh, protect his own existence. Now, we have to take the movie as just the movie. We also talked about this before we started recording, that um, there's more to the story. It keeps going after this. Right, but, but that's all written by Arthur C. Clarke after he writes this with Kubrick. Right. And so we have to take the movie at face value, I think, because who knows what, what Clarke had in mind when yeah. he wrote it. But it's true. The true arc of that story is that sort of 40-minute segment uh, of Hal going mad or becoming more human than is comfortable for everyone and uh, dispatching the crew uh, mm-hmm. in the, the very cold way that you would imagine a sentient computer would, you know? And uh, once Hal is dealt with, I kind of feel almost like the movie is satisfactorily enough resolved for me. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of strange considering the stakes set up by the monolith. If the monolith is this harbinger to a great change or evolutionary step in humanity, I should at that point be wanting to get to the monolith instead of, okay, now credits? 
Yeah. Oh, no, no, we have another movie yet. Well, and then the, that's the thing, that's the rub of the movie, that if you expect any kind of explanation of what the monolith is, you're no. not going to get it. Um, my interpretation is that the monolith is, for lack of a better word, an avatar of some an intelligence advanced beyond ours, right? And they seeded Earth either with life or with intelligent life, right? Maybe they, they sparked moon watchers intelligence into existence right there uh, I've always thought even since I was a kid and I watched it the first time I think it's pretty clear that it's not coincidence that the first act of murder happens on the same day that the monolith shows up right it's like that night at least that's how it's presented in the movie I suppose maybe somehow it's years. So associated with it, but it yeah they happen back to back in the movie they're connected somehow um, the monolith is communicating something to us and then communicating something to Jupiter it points the way to Jupiter and then this is where Dave Bowman the protagonist in Act 3 the astronaut who's leading the mission to Jupiter to find out why the monolith that they find on the moon blasts a radio wave at sending them to Jupiter, Jupiter. so they go to Jupiter to find out what's going on and Dave Bowman ends up flying his cute little spaceship into the monolith I guess. into another plane of existence right in that presumably also has to do with the monolith. So the monolith seems to be the finger of God or of some other intelligence reaching down and touching human beings and um, making fits and starts of evolutionary leaps, right? We see Dave Bowman go from astronaut to some sort of other being that exists out of time and understands all that exists and almost a... It seems almost a god. He's being reborn as a as a more powerful, more advanced uh, form of life. Maybe not more powerful, but more advanced. It's like a some sort of universe catal universal catalyst. The, mm-hmm. the, it just it, it it is the harbinger of change, and it has death associated with it. I guess I, 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 there was death after it was uh, introduced to the monkey people and there's death immediately before uh, they achieved it at the end of the film. But again, I think that the real sort of odyssey part of the movie or the, you know, the mind-blowing uh, sci-fi feel that you're trying to get is as much going to happen in your own head as it is in the movie because there are so few answers offered, especially in that last one. You, We are sort of reaching out at what we feel those shots mean and what those mm-hmm. images mean, but there's no real concrete, and you'd think, well, let's read the book and it'll be more helpful, but yes and no, you, you know. I, that's enjoyable, that can be enjoyable, trying yeah. to figure out exactly what you think something means to you as a narrative or coming out of a movie. Um, I feel like that those final scenes after Dave flies through the color candy-coated world, yeah. he, he finds himself in... Uh, a very clean, um, classically decorated sort of suite apartment with a strange lighted floor, and he sees himself several in several iterations. Right, he's standing in his aging. space suit, yeah. but he's older, and then he sees himself eating dinner, and the version of himself who's eating turns to look at at Younger the version. previous version, and then that man has disappeared, and then this happens again. He sees himself in bed, then the monolith appears to Dave. This is the third time that a monolith has sort of introduced itself to a human being. The first time being the the monkey man on Earth, Moonwatcher. The second time being Frank Chalmers on the, uh, moon. On the moon. And the third one being Dave Bowman uh, in 
orbit around Jupiter in some sort of fever dream, presumably, right? Yeah. Like, um, and he reaches out to it, and then we see him reborn as what star child. the star baby or whatever, yeah. right? And that clearly symbolizes him becoming something else, and it's left up to us to figure out what that is. And you're absolutely right, there are so few answers given, and the movie is in some ways frustrating because you know that that's exactly what Kubrick and uh, Clark wanted, was Just for you to walk out of the theater being like, what does it all mean? A I'm sense of wonder, and I think that's an, uh, you know something you can compliment, that they're trying to achieve that, because I don't know how easy that would be to achieve. And even though I do say the movie moves slow and it is kind of dated, it is you know what the 60s era people imagine the future to look like, mm -hmm. but the future is still very 60s, right? Yes. <laughs> and uh, there, you know, there are flaws, I would argue, to the pacing of the movie, uh, especially looking at it with more modern film perspective. But uh, it's visually amazing storytelling. There are large swaths without any dialogue in it. And scenes where it would be really great to have it. We were talking about Dave shutting down Hal and uh, how it's intensely personal. Hal has killed all of his friends and colleagues. He's now alone at the ass end of space. Yeah. And that's really awful. And Dave is slowly unplugging him while giving him the cold shoulder, something Hal had done previously when locking Dave out of the ship yeah. or refusing to talk to him. Hal would not even grant a conversation. So when the tables turn, instead of having this what could be profound conversation with this <laughs> sentient Murderous computer. computer. Uh, no, we just see the visual and we, we sort of hear the computer's panic. We hear the rebreather on Dave's spacesuit yeah. and just silence apart from that. Just bold good decisions and mm -hmm. uh, you know uh, strong strong science fiction yeah um, and an excellent scene in this is the scene where Hal sings Daisy right? yeah. as he's becoming less and less cognizant of what's going on around him Dave is shutting down his higher brain functions first so that Hal doesn't do something like blow up the ship or whatever yeah right? um, and as Hal gets effectively stupider Dave Changes his tune and, and in an act of compassion, Hal offers to sing a song for Dave, and Dave says, Yes, go ahead. It's the first time he's spoken to Hal since getting himself back into the ship uh, by blowing through the airlock. Right? And Hal is dying and knows it. They both know it. And somehow singing this song it might comfort him. Maybe. Who knows? Maybe. <laughs> Who knows what it's like for an artificial life form to mm -hmm. die? But these are the kind of questions that 2001 asks you to ask. And it's kind of profound, and I get why it's considered a classic. But I will admit that in this list of six movies, um, sci-fi scares and man versus machine, uh, as great as a movie it is, and as much respect as I have for Kubrick, it's not going to be number one on the list. And the gasps that go off all over the podcast world, it's Stanley Kubrick, it's 2001. I know, I know, and I utterly endorse it. But I think that subsequent there's been better sci-fi. I think this movie would rank higher on my personal list than it will um, if you could peel it. Yeah. Take all of that shit that Clark and Cooper came up in their hotel room on what I presume to be some sort of drug trip <laughs> about um, how they wanted to blow audiences' minds and make them feel stupefied and, and uh, confused and all of, try and transmit the, the wonderment they felt about space onto film stock and um, if you take all of that off so that means basically stripping out acts one and four and the chunk of act two yeah and mostly what you're left with is the sentinel 
the original Arthur C. Clarke short story about uh, an intelligent computer watching over people on a long space voyage who, for whatever reason, malfunctions and becomes a murderous computer. Right? And I do believe that was the seed of this it whole It was thing. the seed, and that's what got Kubrick interested in, in this story, but then they collaborated to make, uh, to make it into what it is today. And it's immortal. It will, people will always be watching 2001 as long as people are watching movies so mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter what you and I say about it. it still stands up but watch it with snacks and near a toilet yeah. because you're going to need a break Indeed. it's a bit of Use a task. the intermission that's right Assigned to protect you. You've been targeted for termination. Why does it want me? Why me? Arnold Schwarzenegger is the Terminator. Your future is in its hands. 1984. 1984. <laughs> Do over. Do over. We've gone back in time to start this review again. Um, yes, in, in 1984, James Cameron drops out The Terminator, and it is a huge, huge success. He just success. flops it out on the table. <laughs> and much the way I've said in the past that the the Scream is like the quintessential 90s movie to me. In a lot of ways, The Terminator is the quintessential 80s movie to me. Um, it's not so loud and proud, you know, 80s that it's distracting and embarrassing, but it is definitely of its period. And its influence cannot really be fairly measured. Once The Terminator happened, it opened the doors for all sorts of different kind of uh, movies. And I recently reviewed The Hitcher, where uh, a, a mad bastard wipes out an entire police station and has a huge elaborate car chase. And it really felt like they just wanted to make The Terminator, and they just did this movie called The Hitcher instead. You're right. <laughs> and it helped. It, it did um, establish something that lasted through all of the 80s and some of the 90s, um, which was the R-rated... Uh, action hero franchise actor, right? Every movie Arnie was in was an R-rated action movie f- for several years following, subsequent. many years subsequent to The Terminator. And I'm not, I can't think of many examples of that it's previous. Only, it's true. Uh, they want to try and get as many people in theaters as they can, mm-hmm. but they were certainly making enough money. And that and, became a huge thing in the 80s, right? There were multiple of those kinds of stars who you know, as Hollywood realized, we can actually make huge bucks off of R-rated movies. They don't have to be limited to, to small uh, showings. But I think Terminator distinguished itself from also being really smart. Like, uh, it's an um, amazingly well-made action movie, but like... For a girl. <laughs> <laughs> no, Gail Ann Hurd, brilliant. Yeah, um, and uh, it looks as good as it could in 1984. Some of the special effects have not aged particularly well, but I think the story is strong enough that you go with it. Yes. Uh, and um, it's it's another classic I think it's another one of these movies that's just going to continue to be around there's another yet another Terminator movie coming out summer 2015 yeah don't watch so. any of these other Terminator <laughs> movies though Terminator 1 and 2 and then you can just sort of put the rest of the series out of your mind <laughs> um, so yeah I've already tipped my hand I'm a big fan of the Terminator but uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on it well the Terminator is a movie that I have 
actually not rewatched. It's one of the few of these that I haven't watched in in recent uh, history, but I have seen it many times, and I have. Uh, it was '84, so I was seven, and I would have seen it before I was ten. Uh, it's a really seriously violent and upsetting movie. Um, if we're not watching. Uh, bodybuilder hunt down and system, uh, systematically murder every woman named Sarah Connor in the telephone book in the Los Angeles area, then we are in the future watching giant four-story tall tank robot killing machines driving over mountains of human Bones. skulls, yeah. right? I was like nine, yeah. and so were you, yeah. and we were watching The Terminator. Don't show The Terminator to your nine-year-old, please, ladies and gentlemen. But I loved it. Um, I had the benefit of a father who very clearly explained to me that movies are make-believe and yeah. don't let it get any crazy ideas in your head. And, you know, I did get that PG stamped on the movie, right? I right. did get parental guidance on some of those things. So if, if not for anything else, Dad, thanks for that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, formative influence on my taste in movies, yeah. I think. Um, I love early stage Jim Cameron, I gotta say. Um, he followed this up with Aliens and followed that up with The Abyss. And uh, The Abyss is another example of a movie that has a really good movie buried inside of a bunch yeah. of shit, speaking of 2001. But uh, The Terminator uh, is, is something special. The, the plot, I'm sure most people know, but um, in the future, uh, the bombs have dropped and the robots have taken over the world and there is a human armed resistance that is slowly turning the tide. And in order to fight back, the machines send a Terminator, a robot that looks like a human being, back in time to kill the leader of the resistance mother. He looks like a freakishly muscular human being, but he, he looks like he, a human he, being. Yeah, yeah. He, he passes for the most part. Yeah, if I were designing a Terminator, I would have built one that looked a little bit more like Michael Bean, personally, <laughs> yeah. than Arnold Schwarzenegger. Send a giant Austrian man to walk around Los Angeles. <laughs> and through great kismet, the resistance is, of course, able to send one lone soldier back to protect her. And that is, they mentioned, Michael Bean and uh, Linda Hamilton plays Sarah Connor. Um, Sarah Connor. <laughs> yeah. I think that the fact that he does, as you mentioned, go through the phone book, taking up the Sarah Connors, is a fairly classic, indelible thing about the movie. That yeah. He pulls up to this clearly mother of at least two or three and uh, asks her name and then blows her away with the coldness of a machine really did make an impression. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it was just because we were kids. I just think it was a strong moment. Yeah, it, it was a strong moment, but its impact was definitely, for me, magnified by the fact that I'd never seen a, a movie where a gun put a fist-sized hole through a mother's body <laughs> yeah. before, right? Yikes. Um, but then at the same time, it, that was also the first time I saw a laser beam strapped to a gun, so weird sort of boy thing that happens to, to us when we watch movies like that when we're kids, right? Yeah. Is like, hey, that's cool, but also really upsetting. It speaks to the whole weirdness of violence porn, right? Action movies, the stuff that several of the movies on this list are that, that very thing, and so are horror movies in general, right? Is sort yeah. of violence pornography in it, but not in a sexual sense, yeah. obviously. There's different kinds of horror movies, but uh, one of the things about the podcast is me sort of putting out there that uh, I think most movies have a horror movie or a horror element hiding in it somewhere. Mm -hmm. And as much as this is considered like a science fiction movie, it's horrifying. And the classic sort of structure that we get into, like uh, 
when it gets down to just Linda Hamilton and this half robot machine crawling through like it's it's a scary moment. It's a horror movie moment more than it's a science fiction movie moment in a lot of Absolutely. Um, and this yeah, I, I would firmly agree with you that Terminator is more of a horror movie than it is a science fiction movie. Yeah. Because at the time, it's also said contemporary. It's this this unkillable thing. As far as we see him take so many rounds of bullets and survive acts, car accidents and explosions. Carve his own eye out. Yeah, oh. cut his own eye out of his head, and nothing nothing's hurting him. And you know he doesn't sleep. There's no way they're gonna stop him. And Michael Bean's character, without any of the future weapons, doesn't even know if he can. That's right. Kill it. No. The stakes are immediately really high. <laughs> Absolutely. It's it's like something out of a nightmare. You're dropped into uh, this horrible dystopian 80s world naked with nothing. Yeah. And the best you have is a sawed-off shotgun against an unstoppable killing machine. And the fate of all humanity rests on your shoulders, blah, blah, blah. But also bullets and car chases, yeah. right? And the movie is smart, you're right. The meat and potatoes of the movie is that it is exciting. Yeah. It is really an exciting movie. The The car chase between the Terminator and uh, Reese and Sarah Connor, when he's hucking the pipe bombs out the back of the car and all yeah. that, very exciting. Um, the scene you were referring to where the Terminator is chasing uh, Sarah Connor through the factory and it's yeah. just this nightmarish... Um, tooth and nail fight before she's able to crush it in the in the big horrible press which is I did have nightmares about getting trapped in one of those things because of this movie when I was a kid I wonder what I would think of it now yeah if I'd never um, seen it before um, well you would probably say that it has some dated thing there are some stop-motion animation shots and there's some very obvious sort of blue screeny shots mm -hmm. but like I say I think that the story is strong enough and the momentum of the movie is good enough and that those were the best special effects that they could come up with in 1984 to tell the story many of them stand up to scrutiny today. absolutely um, the things that sort of stand out for me if I want to be picky about the movie as far as to say some negative things <clears throat> I said that, that it, it has an 80s feel, 80s feel to it, but for the most part it doesn't take you out of it. Mm -hmm. There's a scene where uh, Sarah Connor and her roommate stand in front of a mirror before they go outside for a date, and they look at each other and say, better than any mortal man deserves. And both of them look fucking ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> They're like circus clowns. Like yeah. Halloween party or something. Like exactly. it was, It's hilarious. It's hilarious. And I will say, as I say in so many horror movies and science fiction movies, I was less interested in the fact that she's going to hook up with the man of the future who is coming to save her. It's an important story and plot point that Kyle Reese, of course, impregnates her with her, her, her son. With his and, future best bird. Yeah, and... Uh, and That's getting to know your friends, <laughs> indeed. And, <gentlemen>. <laughs> and then <laughs> sacrificing his mind. life to save her, right? It's yeah. like the, the romantic trajectory was there. We needed that story beat, but yes. I was way less interested in those two playing kissy face than I was. A, where's the Terminator going now? Is he going to wipe out another police yeah. precinct? Like, <laughs> luckily, there was a, a very high ratio of Terminatorness to make he to balance it out. Yeah. yeah. And really, there's one sex scene in the movie. It's not that long. It's yeah. not that egregious, and it needs to happen because you know procreation is important to the story. It's not superfluous. It is an no. important plot point. She it, does need to get impregnated. We didn't know that that it was actually you know the father of this this human savior that was being sent back. Right. That was that was news. <laughs> you mentioned the stop motion. Uh, some of the the spot stop motion effects that don't stand up today. Right. And I can think of one of the shots you're talking about is like a 
a head-to-toe shot of the Terminator after its flesh has come off, sort of like stalking down the hallway. And uh, you're right, it doesn't look great. But, um, spoiler alert for the second Terminator movie, it looks better than Arnold with his arm hidden inside his shirt at the end of Terminator 2 when he's supposed to have had his arm severed and he's so bulky that you can't hide a fucking (laughs) 32 inch bicep by tucking it up under your shirt they tried valiantly it looks terrible I think that takes me out of that movie which is made what? 8 years later? yeah with a way bigger budget is it 91 I think? 91 or 92 I don't know I just remembered that it was the biggest movie of the summer. Well, uh, like I say, it's a huge influential movie. I have almost universally positive things to say about it. The Terminator, the second classic in a row we've reviewed so far yeah. in this episode of Rankin Review. The only unasked, unanswered question is when will the Terminator fight the aliens? Yeah. And the Predator could be there too. The it answer needs to happen. Eventually. It will happen eventually. <laughs> I'm sure it will. We'll see you then. get the best of both worlds, the fastest reflexes modern technology has to offer onboard computer-assisted memory and a lifetime of on-the-street law enforcement programming. It is my great pleasure to present to you RoboCop. This guy is really good. He's not a guy, he's a machine. Old Detroit has a cancer. Cancer is crime. Let the woman go. You are under arrest. You you better back up, pal. Your move, creep. What are your prime directives? Well, like I said, I have spoken of Paul Verhoeven before with Starship Troopers, and what I said about that movie I think stands absolutely true with this. When you're watching a Paul Verhoeven movie, you're guaranteed a few things. Ridiculous, excessive violence, and usually nudity, which is kind of soft on in, in RoboCop, and yeah, absolutely no subtlety whatsoever. Nope. This movie is screaming at you throughout, you know? Yep. It's a movie that grabs you by the face and pulls you through the experience of the movie, and uh, it's, it's aggressive. <laughs> the title at the end of the movie literally comes slamming towards the screen and hits you in the face. Yeah. Boom! Robocop! And it's also laced with all sorts of, uh, like, advertising and media of this future Detroit that we are Mm -hmm. seeing. Yeah. So we see a lot of newscasts, like we did in in Starship Troopers, and a lot of the culture of decay. Um, And in a way, it is a little bit prescient about how, you know, shallow reality TV has become, and the sort of brutal nature of decay, especially in Detroit. Like, uh... There are points. There is a little bit of brains in this chaos, but mm-hmm. unfortunately, when I think of RoboCop, it's not the smart stuff that I, I usually think of. It's, it's yeah, Peter Weller being blown to pieces in yeah. goop, and a, a man covered in toxic waste being disintegrated by a van, and, and Sexy. blood spouting from people's throats. Like mm-hmm. this is an unbelievably violent movie, even by today's standards. It's terrific. <laughs> <laughs> it's. Wear a bib. It's like Gallagher seats. It's Gallagher seats. (laughs) That I was going to say. Yeah, watermelons and hammers, ladies and gentlemen. It makes an impression, and it's not boring, but it is almost overwhelming at times. It knows it's an action movie. It knows it's a satirical action movie. Um, It doesn't need subtlety. There, there are other movies he's made that that suffer from 
uh, his lack of, of ability to work with, with subtlety. Yeah. Um, Robocop doesn't suffer a whole lot from that, I don't think. It's a pretty simplistic story. Uh, and the higher, uh, higher functioning elements of the movie are the satire, yeah. right? The, the bits of future advertising we see and uh, how people have descended to uh, an even more selfish, amoral level than they already were in 1987. Yeah. It's comical to see that now, but uh, you're right that it, sometimes it's disturbingly accurate how, how close they got it. Uh, like, for instance, the fact that Detroit is basically hardly not there anymore. Yeah. It's a little depressing, but go on, on and Google uh, Detroit and look at some aerial photographs of Detroit of the 80s compared to the 90s compared to now and it's just the city is disappearing off the face of the planet it's falling down because yeah. no one's there anymore so maybe they will build a new Detroit maybe a large company will come in and buy Detroit yeah. and buy a police force and build a new city and uh, police it with robots with big guns and no there fear is and that's, this is a true thing a statue of Robocop <laughs> in the city of Detroit. <laughs> oh. It's a little ironic sort of symbol of decay. Again, wow. I think we're giving this movie a little bit more weight than it might deserve. Though, yeah, uh, the, got my the tongue in my thing, cheek a little bit. <laughs> the other thing is, as evil and sadistic as a lot of these villains are, they have a perverse charm to them. Like, mm-hmm. the way they are full-on, balls-out, yee-haw, evil, right? Clarence Boddicker <laughs> is... Uh, one of the most memorable action movie villains that I've ever seen. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. I like, for me, I always, my go-to is Alan Rickman in the original Die Hard. Mm. But uh, I, I, I'm, I'm there with you. Uh, the actor was the father in the 70s show. Yeah. Yeah, he plays the leader of this people, drug lords, who are sort of puppets of the evil corporation, which coincidentally is creating RoboCop. Yeah, what's the name of the corporation? I, OCP. OCP. That's what it is. Kurt Wood Smith Kurt is his Wood name. Kurt Wood Smith, I could not remember his As name. As Clarence Boddicker. <laughs> You're coming with me. He's one of those guys that you see his face a lot, but for some reason I can never lock on to his name. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess we should tell, talk about the story. Um, a little bit. <laughs> Peter Weller and his uh, partner working for the first time together on the streets of brutal crime-ridden Detroit and fate puts them in the unfortunate paths of Clarence Decker and his gang. Clarence Boddicker. Boddicker, pardon me. Yeah, that's and right. uh, his, his gang. And Peter Weller suffers a just miserable, miserable death. Yeah, the they hands. emotionally torture him and literally... Tor- like, they, they shoot him to shit. He's Swiss cheese. Yeah. And then they leave him laying on the ground while they mock and ridicule and belittle him and they really they really draw it out (laughs) they're they're cackling like Stephen King villains right like they're just cartoon character evil and Clarence Boddicker is sort of the jester king of them all and he's for all of his horrible nature he's really entertaining he's the I enjoy Robocop it's a guilty pleasure I enjoy it mostly for him right yeah yeah um if you want a big, loud, ugly action movie, this is definitely that. I mean, uh, it 
it, it pays off on the promise of what you'd imagine RoboCop would be, but it's not a PG affair, which is interesting. The trajectory of the series is they increasingly try to make it a more PG affair. Yeah, by they, the time uh, we get to the third RoboCop, I believe he has a jetpack and a monkey sidekick and a, and a <laughs> small Asian ward. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> unfortunate. Um, <laughs> I understand the attempt to franchise this character. I mean, it is an imposing visage, you know. Um, and I think what some of the scenes that really please me are that his first few nights just fighting crime and the unfortunate criminals who uh, encounter Robocop when he's brand shiny new and in his prime. That's right. It's that little bit that you get in the middle of, of Batman movies, right? We spend yeah. the first third of a Batman movie watching Batman become Batman. Yeah. And then we spend like 20 minutes watching Batman kick ass and then we watch the last half of the movie with something bad happening to Batman. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, the middle of Robocop, he's just the hero. And when I was a kid, that was, you know, all most of these movies that we saw when we were kids, right? Robocop, I he was I thought he was pretty cool. The the movie no longer appeals to me on that level. I no longer think Robocop is cool. I just think Clarence Boddicker is entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's where his humanity slips through a little bit in some of those scenes. The way he spins his gun, the way he used to do to impress his kid. That's right. Or uh, TJ Laser. TJ Laser. <laughs> and the way when he encounters some rapists, uh, he punishes one of them by specifically shooting him in the genitals. He it does. It seems like a human decision, not a robotic. The Robocop doesn't usually miss. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. If he hits a penis-sized target, <laughs> he needs to. Yeah. Um, so I, I thought in a movie that was unsubtle and not overly clever that it, that was that was kind of clever touches that, that to bring out the humanity in that way where we've seen in the previous movies the, the robot is this icy cold you cannot reason with a thing yeah um, here there's that war the very sort of defined in that one character um, I don't necessarily think that the movie's more about that than it is about the violence I think at its heart it is just a messy shoot em up. But it is. It's not trying to say nearly as much as the first two movies that yeah. we've talked about so far. Uh, I wanted to mention Miguel Ferrer, I believe his name is. He's sort of the inventor who creates Robocop. Yeah. Who meets a very miserable end. <laughs> he does. He, um, uh, I thought it was a strong performance because it was a weird line to walk with that character because, again, he wasn't a likable character. He was clearly like a, a conniving son of a bitch. But he's the most likable guy at OCP. He's <laughs> yeah. the least hateable <laughs> character in the movie other than, than the cops, the yeah. two cop protagonists. Uh, but all of the other cops are portrayed as, as sort of bullies, right? Yeah. Um, a little bit, it's funny how I remember at the time being shocked by the brutality of the police. Um, and when you compare them to the militarization of today's police, indeed, they actually seem pretty mild. They're carrying like little 38 caliber automatic pistols. They're wearing body armor and helmets, but... Jesus Christ. Uh, tanks and automatic rifles. Yeah, exactly. And it's sort of laughable now to watch it and go, hmm, we thought that was extreme future cop, and yeah. cops today would, would walk through those guys like butter, right? <laughs> um, maybe we could have used some cops like that to take on Clarence Boddicker without having to make a uh, human-machine hybrid horror creature, yeah. because... What a, what a nightmare, right? I mean, yeah, it's it, in kind of an evil program when you think about it. it you yeah, know. you don't really have to think about it. In it's a way, just, yeah. once they introduce the Ed 209 robots, although they're clearly sloppy and problematic, uh, maybe they were built in sweatshops or something. But, they're the uh, cheaper 
more but profitable But it does make robot. sense not to use people parts in the machines. I don't know how that helps you in any way. I guess Robocop has proven to be a fairly effective uh, police officer, so well, he earns himself. But uh, I think the Ed 209 is one of the things that actually sort of announces the 80s origins of Robocop. Because, mm-hmm. again, we go to the stop motion and... Uh, the special effects are less convincing. And for me, it always has bothered me, even when I was a kid, that it squeals. It like squeals like a pig. Yeah. When it falls on its back and can't get up, it squeals. Exactly. It's like Star Wars robots that scream when they get their feet burned in, in Return of the Jedi. It would just try right? to get it's... up and make a terrible racket while doing it, with yeah. just clanging and breaking And I shit, thought but... the whole point of Ed 209 was it's emotionless, unlike exactly. Robocop, right? So why is it suddenly anthropomorphized <laughs> as soon as it's... Uh, laying but on its back. Hilariously sort of, de- you know, defeated but by a flight of stairs. That's <laughs> the reason why someone would want Robocop over Ed 209, is because what humanity is left in Robocop is what's able to keep him from obeying these um, evil orders that he has, right? He's yeah. being ordered to do... Ed 209 is told to do all sorts of horrible illegal shit, and he'll just do it. Robocop does it. The interesting thing, the most interesting thing about the story of the movie, I think, is that Miguel Ferreira's character, who creates Robocop and pushes for Robocop to be the program that gets the contract, doesn't give a shit about that. He doesn't care that the humanity in Robocop will make him more noble, blah, blah, blah. He just wants the money so that he can snort more coke off of bigger hooker boobs. Yeah, exactly. Uh, his motivations are shallow. He's not a mad scientist, but he's not like someone who meant well and, and fucked it up. Yeah, you know? so Robocop is an accident of nobility, and that uh, is sort of interesting. Yeah. But the movie is, at best, sort of interesting. It's entertaining enough, but Robocop is fine. That's my one-sentence review of Robocop. Agreed. Have you ever had a dream, Neo, that you were so sure was real? What if you were unable to wake from that dream? How would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? It's the question that drives us, Neo. What is the Matrix? It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. You are a slave born into a prison for your mind. The Matrix is a system, Neo. That system is our enemy. Try to realize the truth. What truth? There is no spoon. Human beings are a disease, a cancer of this planet. You are a plague, and we are the cure. So you're here to save the world. I'm trying to free your mind, Mia, but I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through. It seems that you've been living two lives. I've seen an agent punch through a concrete wall. So. I think that The Matrix accomplishes a whole lot of amazing things simultaneously. Mm -hmm. A lot of impressive achievements, technically, from storytelling level. Across the map, they broke new grounds. But one of the things that I want to start with is that they found a starring role for Keanu Reeves, which completely worked for all of his best aspects as an actor. Which, Which is, is he looks confused all the time. Reacting in sort of a perplexed way. And that sounds mean, but he's genuinely good at it. Two of my favorite Keanu Reeves performances are the original Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure yep. and this Lawrence Kasdan movie, I Love You I to Love Death. I Love You to Death. I think that he's genuinely funny in those movies. That movie is really... Watch <laughs> I Love You to Death. Yeah. It's, it's a good movie. But uh, a lot. what you have here is, uh, you know, 
this guy Neo, who finds out that he's the one, spoilers. Oh, and Neo is an anagram for one. Oh, oh my god. Whoa! What? My, my brain. Oh my god, uh, I've never thought of that. It's a series of stuff happening to Keanu Reeves. And he reacts well, he does the action really well, and uh, he just takes in exposition and every now and then is asked to say, Whoa. <laughs> That's right. And uh, at the time, I mean, he, he was off of speed. He was hot. But there was like, what, what are we going to do? How, do? how do we use Keanu Reeves? Mm-hmm. And the Wachowski brothers found a very effective way to use it. I'm not even just being mean to Keanu Reeves. I, I think he's genuinely good in the movie because he was well cast. Mm-hmm. In a way, the least interesting character in the movie is the one. It's it, for me. It's all about the stuff that's going on around it, the world that we are introduced to. Yes, and that that's even more pronounced in the sequels, which we're not here to talk about. Yeah. But the and one becomes that, less and less interesting. And over above that, the special effects and the filmmaking that we got to see for the first time. I believe you and I watched this movie for the first time together on the big screen. We did, and with uh, Mr. Lee Beckman. Yeah. In 1999, summer. It was an amazing year for movies generally, but it was a memorable experience. And it was. There was something about watching that movie. It was like I knew, like I was watching a game-changing science fiction movie, and uh, at that time we we had like almost five, six years to enjoy before they fucked it up with lame sequels. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. They did fuck it up. But that's okay, because you don't have to watch them. The movie is contained. Absolutely. Uh, The movie ends with Neo becoming the one completely. It's confirmed. He no longer doubts it. He believes in himself. Indeed. And that's all he needed to do. (laughs) He just needed to believe he could fly. Um, And once that story's told... Neo has become the one, the story's kind of over, right? He's the one. He's going to win. We know that. And then it just takes two more movies before it happens, and they suck. I think I've said it before, but the reason that The Matrix is the best of The Matrix movies is that it is way more interesting becoming the one than it is being the one. Absolutely. And uh, it's just really, really well done. And I like that everything is justified. The fact that we got like a real full-blooded, hard cyberpunk movie where everybody looks cool and badass but they justify why everybody looks cool and badass because when they project themselves into the matrix they're projecting their sort of cool badass yeah selves. what they believe that they look like not what they actually look like what so they, it's, it's a superhero team full of vainglorious people who uh but they can think make they look it, really cool in leather. They can accent the sort of super cool fashion and they do the hyper cool. style of fighting because it's all justified within the world. Whereas other action movies, they do it to make it look cool. But you know, who puts on a fucking Halloween costume before they go to work? You know. Well, like, funny <laughs> enough, most of the movies being made today are about people who put on a Halloween costume before they go to work. Just for the job you want, not that's, the job you have. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's why I wear a leotard to work every day to the office. Um, uh, I offer you the chance to try and take a crack at outlining the plot. Well, you just came all over the Matrix, so let me just wipe (laughs) it off and just... uh, Oh, I got some on my hand. Sorry. That's okay. It's good for the skin. Um, The Matrix is a good movie. Uh, And it's more than just a good movie. It's groundbreaking, like you said, on the levels of photography itself, Mm -hmm. right? The sort of... uh, taking multiple pictures almost simultaneously and compositing them together into those crazy bullet time pan shots that we see in that movie was pioneered by this movie. Um, 
the photography itself is as or more impressive than the special effects, I think. Um, but action sequences, really cool, incredible martial arts that, more than the costumes and the way they look, it's that they justify why these people can do crazy aerial maneuvers and whatnot, right? Wuxia films, except with a, not realistic, but a plausible sort of, a possible explanation yeah. for how this works, right? They're in a computer simulation and they can bend the rules of that simulation in, in, in a way that we can't in the real world. So that's all fun. But the movie does a lot more than that even, in that it, it's a, a fairly uh, far-reaching comment about society and where society is headed in 1999. It still applies today in a lot of ways, yeah. right? The police state is a big thing in the Matrix. Agent Smith represents the police state who are always watching and looking for any kind of, of uh, submersive... Uh, <laughs> Uh, what's the word? Subversive. Subversive elements in society. And our heroes are all quite subversive. As well as submersive, uh, because they're riding around in a submarine in the sewer called the uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Uh, one of the earlier kings in our history yeah. in civilization. And, and this is what it's about. It's about human beings being reborn in a, in a post-apocalyptic world. And, but Mostly, the Matrix applies in, in that other element, in, in the element of the police state and um, how much control people are willing to give up over their lives in order to feel comfortable, yeah. right? That's what sets Neo apart. He chooses to wake up along with these other select few who won't, they reject the, uh, the comforting fake reality that the Matrix is, the yeah. everyday life that that they can exist in, it's much easier to deal with that than we with even, this nightmare that exists outside of the Matrix. We have encountering characters who uh, long for it back. Even though they know the truth, they just want to go back to the, to the lie. Yeah, to the point of betraying their friends, right? We yeah. have a character who sells out his compatriots to Agent Smith and the, and the police computers yeah. in order to go back into the Matrix and have his memory wiped and forget everything he knows so yeah. he can just enjoy life and be I think he asks to be rich too yeah I want to be someone serves. important like an actor or like something. an actor or something yeah. that's <laughs> actually pretty excellent little line <laughs> basically we are introduced to Neo and he works at some computer firm but he sort of has another life he's as a hacker agents that he hacks in computers and he's trying to figure something out he's always been his entire life searching for someone something, something. that he knows is called the matrix for yeah. some reason I'm not sure where he got that idea yeah. um, and there's also another group the people who are living in the real world who have been looking for him and the movie is sort of about these two groups finally meeting yeah. um, and also while they're doing that they introduce us to the fact that our world as we understand it is this matrix this made up thing and in the real world we are all human batteries that are running the world that is now overtaken by sentient machines. That's right. And in the Matrix, the machines are represented most typically by Agent Smith. Hugo Weaving. Hugo Weaving is an Australian actor. This was shot in Australia. They and were all shot Australia. Extremely memorable movie villain. Fan-fucking-tastic. I, I love the interpretation of Agent Smith. Uh, and uh, 
He does take it personal. He is a machine. He gives that sort of cold robotic stance, but he has emotions, and he kind of hates himself for it. And uh, as the sh movie progresses, he becomes more and more owned by his emotions. This mm -hmm. human flaw, this human stink that he complains about, his disgust for human beings, infected him because he does exhibit human characteristics, and that's to him just the worst possible absolutely uh, fate. Uh, and I just love how it's realized by that performance. <laughs> he hates the people he's policing too, which is another interesting thing in light of, of what police are like today, or at least how police are perceived to be today. Yeah. Um, in the most extreme cases, like what's going on in the news right now with all the you know police shootings and slayings and, and whatnot. But uh, there's two actually mirror scenes. One's not really an interrogation, but I kind of like them because they're, they're they're close together. First, when he is taken in by Agent Smith and comes in the room all arrogant, and gives mm -hmm. him the finger and yeah. tells him, "Give me my fucking phone call." And they implant him with this horrible bug that climbs into his belly button. Yep. Horror. 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 Neo's moment. mouth growing shut, <laughs> yeah. melting shut on him so that he can't speak. Can't speak. Which and Agent Smith seems to be able to just summon up at, at I a will. mention, right? Yeah. He just says <laughs> the power that he seems to have is like, and what are you thinking? If you don't know what the Matrix is, did I just encounter a wizard or a demon or something? Right. Um, and then, you know, fast forward 20 minutes later in the movie, and he's in a different room with a different suspicious bone of people, and he's asked if he wants to take this red pill or this blue pill. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he chooses one, he goes back to his life, no, no harm, no foul. Just the other one, he gets to learn the truth, but he's got to follow it wherever that leads. Yes. And uh, his transition into the real world, I also found to be kind of a horrifying sequence. Yes. <laughs> and really well done. We just went from... Just Probably keep going. my favorite part of the movie is Morpheus taking him into the Matrix for the first time and explaining it to him. It's just, it's very it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Larry Wachowski is now Lana Wachowski, so I guess they're the Wachowski siblings now. Oh, okay. Um, That's what you meant when you said that. Yeah. He'll, he'll always be Larry. He'll, nobody wants to be Larry, as I've said in the past in this podcast many times. <laughs> um, I'll call you Laura. By all account, like, across the board, they wrote and directed and built this movie in their head, and I am completely impressed. Directing a movie, I think it's a, just a really difficult thing to do, and I, I guess I sort of understand tandem, having two heads at it. Mm -hmm. My favorite filmmakers going are the Coen brothers, and in some cases maybe two heads are better than one. Unfortunately, subsequent films didn't give the Wachowskis the same kind of track record that the Coens have, but if they make nothing but crap for the rest of their careers, which I don't think they have, but if they did, they would always have... The Matrix. the Matrix. Yeah. <laughs> they've made other entertaining movies and they've made other high minded movies, mm -hmm. right? Um, v for Vendetta tries to say a lot. They wrote that one, yeah, and they've recently done this very challenging one, Cloud Atlas, which will Ye utterly I'm Glad I'm not head. reviewing that. <laughs> yeah. We're gonna have to just do a whole episode on that shit. I would have to watch Cloud Atlas. <laughs> it was innovative on every corner. Yeah. That's basically the exactly where we end up on, on the Matrix. And um, I cannot encourage you enough to watch it. I would maybe dissuade you from watching the sequels, but I do feel like it's inevitable if you watch the Matrix, you're gonna wanna watch the sequels just because it'll be cool, right? Well maybe you won't because of Larry's warning. Yeah. Maybe perhaps he's saved you the trouble of watching Matrix Reloaded and Matrix Revolutions. <laughs> um, but the Matri Matrix is a good movie, absolutely. It will be higher on my list than I probably would have thought it would have been if you'd asked me in 1999. I thoroughly enjoyed it when I first saw it, but yeah. I 
and I knew it was groundbreaking special effects. That was obvious. We'd never seen anything like it, but I would not have predicted that 15 years later I'd be thinking as highly of the movie as I do today. Yeah. I just want to also just briefly mention there's sort of some Asian influences to this, the, not just the combat, the fighting sequences, but the sort of epic gun battles we're treated to. There's a, a great That's true. sort of rescue Morpheus who's been taken in by the agents. Very John Woo. And the, yeah, Chow Yun-Fat. Sort of, of slow motion, crazy bullets flying, glass breaking, slow motion shootouts that you would see in John Woo and stuff like that. Again, very well employed. And in 1999, it wasn't as familiar uh, to at least on this side of the ocean as, as, it, as it was. So, anyway. Good stuff. Good stuff? Good stuff. We designed them to be trusted with our homes with our way of life, with our world. But did we design them to be trusted? The rollout of USR's new generation of robot, the NS5, was marred by the death of designer Alfred Lanning. Identify. Murder's a new trick for a robot. Respond. Alex Proyas, I think, is a very interesting director. He does not always hit it out of the park, but I think he's visually very strong and, a, and he's an ambitious filmmaker. He likes the science fiction genre, and I've said before that science fiction, I think, is one of the more difficult types of films to tackle. And I think he's had success twice before. I thought that Dark City was a very, very solid science fiction I movie. I love Dark City, yeah. Uh, I'm a defender, believe it or not, of the Nicolas Cage film Knowing. Uh, which I've not seen. Um, I've only seen The Crow and Dark City. And, and yeah, uh, most famously he is known for The Crow, where, uh, unfortunately, an actor died on set, which cannot have been a good thing for any filmmaker to have had to go through. Anyway, here we come to talk about I, Robot. I, Robot. A movie that many people wanted to see made for a long time, but I'm not quite sure it should have been made into... I'm quite sure it should not have been made into a movie that I watched. Yeah. I didn't enjoy iRobot. No, and the thing is, is Asimov is a revered author in the science fiction genre, and the, the book iRobot is more sort of a series of stories and events set in a world where robots exist. Yes. And most famously from the book are the three laws... Which are, as I'm reading from Asimov's the back of the case... laws of robotics. A robot may not injure a human being. A robot must obey the orders given it. And a robot must protect its own existence. Mm-hmm. That is all that this movie takes from Asimov. Everything Other else... Other than the title. Uh, and the title. Everything else is complete invention. To that point, I would just say, why is this iRobot? Why doesn't this just have a different title on it? I would probably like it slightly more. Why don't they just call it World War Z? Yeah, yeah. Robot War. <laughs> Ro World War R. Yeah, you know. <clears throat> and I think another problem going into it, other than them sort of not using the source material, which is rich, I think this is sort of where I was starting to get worn out on Will Smith. Mm. Uh, I have found him charming and, and fun in other action, bouncy sort of roles like this, but he seemed more about coming off as cool and badass and looking good than actually playing the part in times in this movie. It was like... I can't remember the last time I watched a Will Smith movie and went, well, that was great. Yeah. <laughs> that just blew my mind. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, 
I don't think he sucks. I don't have any strong I don't think he's feelings a horrible about Will actor, Smith, but one way or the other. I was just distracted by how much like it was about making him look super cool a lot of the time and the stakes of the movie are fairly high and there's like a sinister possibly scary story that could be explored here possibly scary yeah um, but not scary in the film as it is as it exists today I did not find myself frightened at any point it's sort of a detective story or that basically the initial setup is mm-hmm. a uh, James Cromwell plays a scientist who is all about robotics and intelligent robots. Thank who, you for reminding me because I've forgotten most of this. <laughs> yes. Uh, he is... Looks like he's thrown out of this ridiculous high window and uh, splattered on in the lobby floor of this big business. And uh, for some reason, his dying wish is that should anything happen to him, this Will Smith character investigate his death. And uh, the reason that it is, as we find out, is Will Smith has a deep-seated distrust of robots and technology. He lives an old-school life. He's a curmudgeon. He's sort of like how I imagine myself to be as an old man, if I'm lucky enough to get there, when, like, technology is way beyond me. And, you know, (laughs) there are hotels orbiting the Earth. And And you have your very own robot. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I don't need me a pet dog robot. In my day, we used real dogs, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can totally, I can sort of relate to that sentiment. Um, so he's old school, and that gives him a chance to be a quote modern character for when this was made in this futuristic movie. He's modern for the audience. I mean, right? Exactly. Um, he feels contemporary to us because he hates the future he lives in. He really <laughs> just doesn't like it. But because he doesn't like and doesn't trust the technology, uh, the scientist wants him on the case, and that. Brings, brings his antenna up, you know, like, mm-hmm. he puts the ears up, like, this means that there's something about these robots that is going to be a problem. In a way, he's been waiting for this case his whole life, because it's his chance to finally be right. That's right. <laughs> he really doesn't like robots. <laughs> yeah. Um, the central robot in the film is uh, played and voiced by Al- Alan Tudyk. Yes. From the Firefly series. He um, was Wash, right? Yeah. Yeah, and... You know, he was a robot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he brings a limited amount of charm. Like, uh, I, I would much rather have seen the actor than this sort of... Absolutely. Actor. And his performance, if I remember it correctly, is fairly subdued because yeah. he is a robot. He's an artificially intelligent being. He's yeah. not particularly animated or funny or interesting or scary. He's, but he's, he's a sinister s- in that he's a robot. And he's a murder suspect. Yes. Right. And uh, he does seem different, markedly different, than any of the other robots that we see. Um... But for the most part, again, I'm just looking at this with my jaw hanging open, saying, well, this is not iRobot at all. None of this is iRobot to no. me. When we finally get to the second half of the movie where, you know, the robots start trying to take over and we get to see these great special effects sequence, memorably there's a chase sequence that happens in this vast tunnel where the robots try to take out the Will Smith character and uh, they're jumping from car to car and climbing all over these great yes. moving... It's visually amazingly rendered. And it's a great bit of energy in a movie that uh, I wish that I cared more about the characters, in, you know, so that I could feel the stakes. Like, oh no, don't get, don't die, yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't get Will Smith. Uh, we know he's safe the whole time. Never I, fear I for him. Never felt fully engaged in the movie, and and maybe that was my own fault. Yeah, maybe not. Um, that chase through the tunnel is one of the few memorable things about the movie, yeah. and. Not even really memorable enough because 
I had forgotten about it until you mentioned it just now. <laughs> we watched this together, but it was a few months ago, easily. But uh, but it wasn't that long ago, yeah, right? It, and I had I remember commenting to you even just a week after we watched it that like we better do that podcast because I've already <laughs> forgotten my robot. And that is not high praise, like obviously. We get to this hive mind computer and they have to pour these like nanites into it so that it'll eat the brain out of the computer to fight it. Okay. And again, there's great special effects rendering as these hundreds and hundreds of these individual robots climbing up the side of this great vast building and uh, huge panning camera shots swinging as people are flying through the air and just amazing to look at and I felt nothing. <laughs> and I bet nothing. it cost ten times what Dark City cost. Yeah. Dark City was was uh, thoughtful and forced the audience to think and was beautiful and was scary and, and it cost almost nothing compared to iRobot. And I think probably a great influence on The Matrix, if you think Absolutely. about it. Um, Absolutely. The, uh, the, the tall, black-clad characters, Mr. Book and Mr. Uh, what are some of the other names? Mr. Hand. Yes. Still scary. It's creepy stuff. And uh, that's where I'm going to sort of come out on this. I still am a fan of Alex Proyas, and on a sound-off level, this movie does work. I don't think it works as a particularly engaging investigative story or as an action movie, as pretty lights on the screen, I guess. But I, I, it was a big hit, and they threatened to make a sequel for it, but here we are ten years later, and it hasn't come to be. So there is, you know... I'm surprised that it was a big hit. At the time, I think anything that Will Smith attached his name to was a pretty good luck. I guess. Um, and uh, I don't know. I, I hate to be so mean, like I try to give every movie the benefit of the doubt, and they're not, it's not easy to make movies, and especially a movie like this, but I like to think that this movie was successful enough, made enough money, that he was able to do something a little edgier. Uh, there are people who have great problems with knowing, which is what he followed this movie up with, um, and it's not a perfect movie, but it's an ambitious science mm. fiction movie in a way that iRobot is not. Well, I ought to watch it. <laughs> iRobot is the only movie on this list that I would wave someone away from and say, don't don't watch it. Yeah. It's not a wise use of 90 minutes. The other five movies on this list, I would tell somebody to watch if they were interested. Yeah. Yep. I don't know what else to say. I feel like we've been really mean. But Ty McBride is in it. You know, we're, we're being critical. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're voices on the internet saying whether they like something or not. Yeah. But uh, I, I don't have anything against it. I just didn't. It was, it was a mild, tasteless sort of, didn't have any flavor. Yeah. There's an actor I like, Chai McBride, uh, who plays the police chief in it, who yells at him. <laughs> I uh, always like him. He, he, was, he used to be on this old show. I used to watch the John Little Cat show. Oh, I remember and, the John uh, Little Cat show in the subway. Yeah, yeah, and he's in The Frighteners, the Peter Jackson mm. in The Frighteners. Um, I, I usually like seeing him, and he was sort of like something that I could cling to. Hey, there's a face that I like. James yeah. Cromwell, too. I like him as a rule, and there's yeah. nothing wrong with his performance. Everybody's fine. And the production value is amazing, but yeah. I don't know. They need another kick at that script, man. Or, hey, why don't you have a good over. read of that, that book, that iRobot book, and maybe get a little more ambitious with it. But I Let guess somebody who cares about Asimov's writing write something. They're not trying to make Asimov is the thing. They're trying to make a Will Smith sci-fi vehicle. And that's fine. And just don't call it iRobot, damn it. And don't make me watch it again, Larry. <laughs> Sorry, my bad. They can't all be winners, can they? No. Bell reporting to Central. Everything running smoothly. 
and out. Rock and roll, God bless America. Good morning, Sam. Do you want me to cut your hair then? Lunar Industries remains the number one provider of clean energy worldwide due to the hard work of people like you. <laughs> Three years is a long haul, you know. I know you're really lonely up there, but I'm proud of you. Two weeks to go, Sam. Two weeks to go, buddy. I'm going home. Looks like we got a live one. I'm gonna go out. Okay, Sam. Moon is the debut feature from Duncan Jones, who uh, subsequently directed Source Code, which a sequel is in is being cooked for right now. That's on my watch list, Larry. And uh, he is going to he is in the process of making this huge Warcraft movie. Um, so he's really he's be, just playing Warcraft. And getting yeah, paid for it's it. just getting research done. Yeah, um, but he seems to be getting bigger and bigger budgets, which is kind of pleasing to me because I'm a big fan of his work so far. Mm -hmm. um, Moon stars Sam Rockwell, Kevin Spacey, Sam Rockwell, and Sam Rockwell. <laughs> With a little Kevin Spacey. <laughs> yeah, there's also, there's a little bit of Kevin Spacey there as well. But um, we are introduced to this character of Sam, who is living this solitary life, mining this precious ore from the moon, and spending his days hanging out with a very deliberately HAL-like sentient computer. Yes, this is Hal from 2001. You might remember 2001 from yes. our previous discussion. <laughs> um, and I think that this movie I, is very aware. It's a science fiction movie for a science fiction audience. And it knows that people who love sci-fi love the shit out of 2001 and are familiar with its elements. And it's clearly made by someone who loves the shit out of 2001. Absolutely. Yeah. But I love the way it kind of uses our dislike and distrust of Hal against us in this movie because we know how and the history of that and because we know that there's going to be some kind of threat or danger or puzzle to figure the out. The mild-mannered robot must be evil. He must be bad news. He must be bad news. And you really get the feeling like it's it's holding something back. It's not telling Sam everything. And uh, there's truth to that. But as this mystery is slowly unfolding, this becomes, in a way to me, not only the most horrific movie on this list, but probably the most profoundly sad. That said, I fucking love it. It's really, really good. And uh, I've watched Sam it a few Rockwell, times now. man. Sam Rockwell, like how he didn't get a nomination at least for this movie. Like, uh, well, that doesn't surprise me to be honest, because nominations are, you know, I only care about what we think of the movie, and so should Sam Rockwell. We yeah. love you, Sam. We love particularly you, particularly in Moon. Um, <laughs> Yeah, he's not even really there to mine. He's a he's just there to sweep the floor and be there in case something goes wrong, right? The whole mining operation is completely automated. Um, the movie is probably the most scientifically accurate uh, space movie since 2001. Uh, I remember an anecdote I heard about this movie in which... Um, People were asking uh, the makers of the movie that were doing a panel with a bunch of scientists. They'd shown them the movie and were asking for feedback on what they felt about it. Uh, they were I'm not sure if they'd seen the movie or if they'd been shown the script and were asking for feedback mm -hmm. on the scientific elements of the movie. 
and somebody made the comment of why are the uh, um, walls of the station that he's living in on the moon they look like they're concrete they're all thick slabby like wouldn't the sort of prefab habitats you drop down onto the moon be more like a train car right a metal box right and the answer was well no they this is a substance that's called mooncrete that you would make once you get to the moon by mixing water with, with the uh, sediment on the moon's surface. Right. And someone else in the audience said, that's very interesting because I'm working on exactly that technology for building habitats on, nice. on otherworldly bodies. So, you know, that's hearsay on the internet from some guy who doesn't right. know what he's talking about. But I did read that story somewhere. Wish I could find the source. Um, very cool movie, not just because it gets that kind of thing right, but because it tells a uh, a story that really gets to me in, yeah. a, in a way this that makes me really uncomfortable. It, it, it had a big effect on me when I watched it. and um, It could be a particularly dark episode of like the Twilight Zone or something about this and sort of like the brutal twists and turns it takes. Um, I'm just going to start off with the plot. I think we'll talk more about it as we get into it, but... Sam is almost done his three year contract he's like two weeks or under away from getting to go home and he is ready to go and there's some sort of technical problem out in the field that he has to go and look at and he ends up crashing this grader that he's driving mm-hmm. all of a sudden we see Sam waking up in the sort of medical room on board the computers or the, the HAL program computer robot is nursing him back to health Gertie Gertie thank you yeah. um, is nursing him back to health and uh, circumstances dictate that he realizes that his spacesuit is missing and that that machine he was using is still out where it is That's and when right. he goes to investigate it despite Gertie's protests he finds Sam he finds himself in there and he brings that Sam who is very sick and not well back and tries to back puzzle to out base. what is happening has he gone crazy from being alone too long in space what what the fuck is going on so the crashed Sam wakes up to find another Sam standing at his bedside and the two of them are needless to say flummoxed and that's where we start and that's just where the turns and, and, and questions of the movie begin really uh, one of the things that made me know while I was watching it the first time that this was kind of like a, a really smart movie was it seemed to know what I was asking. I, in the first 10-15 minutes of the movie I thought this is an interesting setup but why is Sam alone? Why would they make him be alone? He's not like he's that far from Earth and it's not like having another person on the space station is such an unbelievable expense. Like why? And the movie answers that question. And when you're in Sam's head and you see, like, why is there a body in that thing? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you ask that question the same time Sam does. It anticipates where its audience members are going to be in a way that few movies really, very true. really try to. The exposition to. is timed to exactly when it's on a need-to-know basis. Right? Yeah. You get to that question and they know that if you're with the movie, this is what you'll be wondering now. But very I will say, engaging. this is not something that you can watch passively. If your head's in your phone or if you're, like... If you're not yeah. totally engaged with the movie, just then watch it's not, robot in that Yeah, case. indeed, indeed. Um, th- this movie will pay off the attentive viewer, but yeah, it, it's not an action movie, and it's not even necessarily a thriller. Like I say, it's got the feel of like a, a dark Twilight Zone episode almost. But I do find like the more that Sam discovers, the more horrifying his situation seems to become. 
And the movie is horrifying, even though I'm not sure that you could call it a horror movie. You'd yeah. have a hard time putting that on the horror shelf of it's Blockbuster. True. It's a science right? fiction movie, but it sure has a lot of horror in the, in the brew. Like, it is horrifying, yeah. right? The, the thought of... I mean, where we end up to jump ahead in the story synopsis is that there's an entire library of sleeping Sams yeah. in this base, and that whenever one wears out, they simply dispose of it and activate a new Sam and tell him the same story, that he's got three, a two-year, three-year contract, whatever it is, yeah. to live on the moon. And um, Worse than that, they're programmed to be homesick. They, they come into the world believing that they've got like a three-year-old and a wife back home. That's right. Um, because... Presumably the original Sam did. Yeah. Um, the Sam sort of get together in this and try to send a message home, and they break sort of the perimeter that they're supposed to to get to these towers, and one of the Sams calls home to find a teenage daughter. Uh, so she was three in the tape when they recorded that. So this is that several this Sams is the later. Third, or, or every three years, so let's say five Sams. Unless there have been accidents, right? Five so. Sams have gone by, give or take, uh, to get to this one who finally sniffed out what's happening. Yeah, and who ultimately does manage to get home, right? One of the Sams does make it, like, five or six, which one? <laughs> I believe it's Sam 2, uh, because Sam 1 is deteriorating, uh, and because the he's, company he's is coming to... to quote pick him up but they just do they're just going to vaporize him they're going to take the body out of the the machine put the machine back where it's supposed to be and get everything ready for the the new Sam right that's right Uh, so they need a body in in the machine and Sam 1 volunteers that so there's only one Sam there they can wake up Sam number 3 or 4 the other Sam can presumably catch a ride sneak a ride home however that works yeah Um, but that the fact that he is completely anchored with this programmed homesickness that after these three years I get to go home and he's watching this footage of his wife and his child and every day that goes by is a day closer to him getting to go back and that it's all a this lie. cruel lie that the computer sees and he sees this Sam suffering and he sees this Sam wanting to go home and his programming the computer is to help Sam so when Sam starts figuring it out the the computer does everything it can within the parameters of its program to help him. To help him figure it out. And because we're programmed to think it's Hal, he's going to do something awful, he's, he's, he's responsible for this. Yeah. He helps Sam achieve an awareness of what's really going on. In a way, if it, if it was a story about a guy who went crazy in space and started seeing different versions of himself and just went barking mad, it would be a happier story. Yeah. Like, the coldness that it would take to, pro- to make these living beings to live a life of toil and suffering and to die a meaningless death. And the coldness <sighs> of, the, uh, of the fact that the only reason it's done is because it's cheaper to do this rather than train a new guy or pay him several years how much do you pay one of these clones yeah exactly probably nothing a clone and a robot mining for all of the earth's resources off of the moon yeah uh a lot cheaper than actually having to fly things back and forth from the moon people training people to do the job too because like uh you get just glimpses of it in in reports because one of the clones does as you say make it home and spills the beans he climbs into the the big rail gun that they use to shoot their their uh, refined ore back towards the earth. Yeah, and he takes some of the ore with him. It's a plot point that's not very clear, but uh, so that he'll have money. It's valued quantity, mm. so he takes some for himself as well. But yeah, so he spills the beans. But it's interesting because the original Sam 
who they made the clone copy of was presumably complicit. So in a lot of ways, Sam, Sam is both our protagonist and our villain. Because <laughs> he kind of created all of these Sams. Do you right? think he was complicit? Is that established clearly? Well, it's been a while since I watched When it. he talks to his daughter on the phone, he finds out that his wife has died, but her, her dad is still there. Sam, mm. the original Sam, is a person who lives alive on yeah. Earth. They just used his DNA to make and, these Sams. And, and his life story. Yeah. Exactly. So that's the question. I mean, you could easily sneak someone's DNA, mm -hmm. uh, but how do you sneak their memories, mm -hmm. right? So you might need to sign a consent form <laughs> before someone can you take you. You think your... that you'd like to think, even in a real world as fucked up as this, that there would be some paperwork before you'd let someone clone you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it would be much easier, I'm saying, to, to surreptitiously take someone's DNA than I guess. memories, right? So yeah. he, that's a good indicator that he knew, maybe knew what was going on. Yeah. That's pretty awful. Yeah. Yeah. So, smart movie. Uh, not for everyone. Not action-packed. It's not a shoot-em-up, slam-bang, science fiction sort of piece. This is meditative. Meditative? Meditative? Oh, my God. <laughs> there you go. One of those. It's something that you will sort of... It sticks. It's stuck in my craw. Like you say, when I first watched it, I was kind of devastated by it, but at the same time, I wanted to show it to everybody. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You sort of watch it and go, well, even if 2001 is not the movie I wanted it to be, it set me up so nicely for enjoying Moon in yeah. a way that you wouldn't be able to enjoy that movie if you weren't familiar with Hell, yeah. right? Because that really is, a, the movie does all sorts of things well, but that little twist of, uh, of Gertie being... The helper. Like, being, being a benevolent character yeah. is, uh, doesn't exist. That twist isn't there unless you suspect, and the movie doesn't do very much to actively... Uh, make you suspect Gertie. Kevin Spacey gives it a sort of flat delivery so yeah. he's kind of hard to read he's not charming but yeah. he also doesn't they don't shoot it they don't present it there, there are no musical cues to yeah. tell us Gertie's bad the movie doesn't lie to us about it it just counts on us to make that conclusion because of our experience with the other movie watch Moon yeah it's absolutely it's a fantastic science fiction movie, and it's more of a complete story. Whereas, like as we talked about 2001, the ending is kind of up to you in that one. This one kind of pays you off with that finish. I mean, another version of this movie, which would probably still, I would still say would be great, would be just, there would would leave us with, with Sam and the series of clones on the base trying to puzzle it out. Really, the concept alone is strong enough to sustain a movie. The fact that they paid us off in the third act the way so few science fiction movies seem to be able to manage. Um, and this is his first movie. I have, maybe you can fill me in on this, I have heard a rumor that there is talk of a second moon movie. Oh, really? Is this true? I'm Something not as about as I've heard. Sam, the, the Sam who escapes the moon coming back to Earth. Oh. It being set on the Earth, it, obviously, I don't think it would be called Moon. Um, and that might just be a dream I had, but okay. I, I had heard something about that. Even the Sam that goes back to Earth, though, it's not, it's not a really happy ending to me. Because one of the last things that the first Sam says to him before he goes, I don't know if he implicitly tells him that he's got a three-year clock on his life, mm. but he tells him to travel a lot. <laughs> when he gets to Earth, he should travel a lot. You should see the world, yeah, because he doesn't have a lot of time. Yeah, well, and he, we we see the other Sam deteriorating, and and presumably it's because his his expiration date is nearing rapidly. Yeah. But uh, no, it's not a happy ending. If it were a happy ending, I don't think we'd see a sequel of it. Right? Yeah, I mean, Moon itself does not have a happy ending, and nor should the follow up. <laughs> 
but it, it's it's not a terribly upsetting movie. Um, but once you start thinking about it, you start and and the cruelty of his situation. Yeah. Then yeah, we said it twice already. But horrific, not horror, but horrific, horrifying. All right, brother, the time has come for you to rank... Cash money on the table. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's time for you to rank these six man and machine sci-fi scare movies. Um, it's a tricky list. Not only are a lot of the movies good, I can't quite say all, but a lot of the movies are good, but they're very different. Um, their strengths come from sort of different fields, so... I totally am sympathetic to the fact that this was not the easiest list. Most of them are cross-genre movies. You could stick them in a couple of places. Yeah. Um, but uh, this is all you, brother. What was your least favorite and why? Well, this one was not a difficult decision. <laughs> iRobot was my least favorite. We were kind of beating up on the stupid kid when <laughs> yeah. we talked about that movie earlier. Um, I just want to summarize that my feelings about iRobot were that I don't feel any vitriol toward the movie. I just don't care about it. You could watch it on a plane. Yeah, but I wouldn't. <laughs> I'd probably just look out the window or, you know, read Daydream. something or nap, yeah. right? Any of those things would be preferable to uh, to iRobot, but I don't particularly like airplane movies. I watched Waterworld on a plane. Number five right. um, is also not a difficult call for me, and that's Robocop. Um... Robocop is the... I like Robocop, so now we've stepped into the territory of movies that I would and do enjoy watching. Right. Um, but it's not a it, it's not an important movie like the other four. And even though it's got a nostalgia value for me from watching it as a, when I was a kid, it, it's just... It's entertainment, and it doesn't reach for anything beyond that. There's a little bit of satire, like we talked about. It's extremely... Um, there's no subtlety. There's subtlety in the other four movies on this list in <laughs> yeah. spades. And I like that complexity in the story. So number four, I am saying 2001. Um, I don't need to repeat my feelings. We gave that movie a 20-minute treatment, I think, <laughs> earlier in, the, in this episode. Yep. Uh, but 2001 gets number four in spite of the fact that only a quarter of that movie is good. <laughs> More than a quarter, but one of the four acts is is good enough to overcome all of the problems with that movie yeah. to make it a better movie than Robocop, in my opinion. <laughs> Discounting the fact that it's a more important movie than Robocop. Uh, Terminator gets number three. I love Terminator. There's very little wrong with the Terminator as far as storytelling goes. We were nice to Terminator in our review, but yeah. we should have been nice to the Terminator in our review. Hells yes. It's a good movie. We're getting into the territory where I found this really tricky, yeah. because on another day, I might tell you Terminator's a better, the Terminator is a better movie than Moon. Um, today, I'm not gonna. Moon gets number two for me. Uh, and your eyebrows just did a thing that makes me think that you just disagreed with me for the first <laughs> time so far in my ranking, because I think you put Moon first, but maybe not. Um, Moon is a great movie. It might be a better film, <laughs> right? 
but I've seen it three or four times. I haven't seen everything there is to see in that movie, but I think Matrix wins on rewatch value and on the fact that it's exciting, right? Moon is, is so good on so many levels, and I love watching it, but it's not exciting on the level that The Matrix is. Right. I'd like to point out that leading into this, The Matrix is the one movie on this list that I've not watched in the past year. Right. So maybe if I watched it again with you as soon as we're done recording this, I'd be like, oh, Jesus Why Christ, Paxton, what the fuck? <laughs> but The Matrix wins this list of six movies, in my humble opinion. Uh. I was so close, but so far. Fantastic list, fantastic list, and you are absolutely correct. We were so fucking close, but I I agree with you a hundred percent until those top two. Do I, I get points for calling it? <laughs> you called I it. Predicted you called what it. your list would be. Um, I should get half the prize. Yeah, no, I mean, iRobot announced itself loudly and truly as the least interesting of these movies. Like yeah. I said, we watched it not long ago, and we're humming and hawing with what to say about it. That wasn't just berating its existence. So I think. We were maybe more severe than we needed to be, but it was loudly the least of these six movies. That movie was so forgettable, I don't even remember what we said about it earlier. Robocop is charming, and it is of its era, and it's uh, to a very specific mood. If I'm in the mood to watch Robocop, Robocop is there for me, <laughs> you is. know? Uh, but it's not the same pedigree, again, as the rest of these films. It's interesting, and it's fun, and it's kind of a, a time capsule. And like we said, weirdly, you know, predictive of of things to come um but also dumb and loud <laughs> dumb and loud but for some reason i own it on blu-ray oh wait i own it on blu-ray because of rank and review it was worth it it was, it was pretty as far as robocop goes 2001 space odyssey again number four that seems weird to put a kubrick movie that low and a movie that is i'm not even going to deny it a classic that low but that's where it falls on the list for me Terminator is a game changer, um, and like I say, its influence is felt throughout the 80s and deep into the 90s. In fact, I don't think there was a more significant game changer until The Matrix, as far as science fiction films, which is why I ranked it ahead of Terminator, although I have a lot of love for both of those. Moon broke my heart, man. I don't know what, it, in an emotional level, it got me. It maybe isn't a popcorn movie, and you're right about that, and maybe it's not something that I'll watch as many times as I watch The Matrix. But it kind of rocked me. And this list is not necessarily best popcorn movie. It's true. It best is. movie. For me, Favorite if, if I'm going to say what is the best of these six movies, uh, today, right now, in this room, I'm saying Moon. But my heart's a little bit broken because we were so close. We were very close. How many people have won? One. Okay. In 38 episodes, one person has claimed a prize. Moving Karen forward DC. from here, I want you to tell people one and a half people have gotten it right, <laughs> because I, I didn't match your list, but I predicted your list. Yeah. I know that it's completely ridiculous and random to say, <laughs> rank these six movies from the list of the worst. I mean, I definitely watch five out of these six movies, and if you're bored on a plane, whatever, iRobot, it's pretty. It is pretty. Alex Proyas is an interesting director, but I hope this is his worst film. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing sci-fi scares with me, brother. I think it no went really well. <laughs> Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. I sat here, pen in hand, for like five minutes in between our last review and uh, giving my ranking. And it, that five minutes was to decide between The Matrix and Moon. So it came down... <laughs> it was so close. It came down to a nose hair um, between Larry and I. And 
I think it's time for some nude wrestling, Larry. <laughs> Let's turn off this microphone. It seems the least I could do. Or would you prefer we leave it on? <laughs> we could leave it on. Not for the podcast, Will. That's just for us. this week we're not going to give out awards all of these movies are worthy of awards except for iRobot <laughs> except for iRobot <laughs> um, but uh, we're going to just do a little bit of critical roundup the uh, Paxton did some research so we're going to see sort of where we compare to the uh, critical masses <laughs> yes now for uh, your gracious host and myself it's been several days since everything else we talked about um, but we got back together so if you recall from Moments ago, Um, Larry and I agreed on everything. Except the top two. Except the top two. We had a disparity in opinion there. Um, I said Matrix number one, Moon number two. Larry said Moon number one, Matrix number two. Um, We have since wrestled over it. (laughs) And that was also a stalemate. So here we find ourselves uh, again. I still think that I'm right and you're wrong, but I (laughs) also think it's a really close call, as we talked about. Uh, I did want to mention that, Larry, you said to me, before we recorded the episode, that uh, I should maybe consider which one of these movies I would most want to take to a desert island if I didn't have a volleyball. Right. and I just wanted to point out that Moon would maybe hit a little close to home. For <laughs> yeah, that. it's true. Um, and that is usually where I will go if I come down to, especially to the top two. Like, I can't decide, I can't decide. Okay, well, I can never see one of these movies again, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> and you're right, probably in that case, um, I, I'm probably more in the mood for a popcorn adventure ride than I am mm-hmm. for, like, this heartbreaking Twilight Zone episode. Right, I mean, you don't want to take Gilligan's Island with you. To Gilligan's Island. Right. Um, (laughs) I get that, but um, I don't know. Upon re-watching all six movies, Moon was the one that I was the most emotionally connected with, and the one that I, you know, just wanted to to ring the praises for. And everybody fucking loves The Matrix. I mean, there's some snobs out there, like there are people who don't like Lord of the Rings just on principle, so I'm sure there are the same people who don't like... And I'm talking about the original Matrix movie, maybe not the entire trilogy. (laughs) No, not the entire trilogy. uh, Matrix is a beloved movie, and it's a watched movie, and it's it's got cultural impact. Um, I don't think Moon has that weight to it. Maybe that's not a reason to put it ahead of The Matrix, but it's just one of the reasons... I don't think that really should factor into this particular rank. Uh, The way you do rankings on this show doesn't generally take in cultural significance as a major factor. That is a rule. I agree with you. Moon definitely pulled on my heartstrings more than The Matrix did. Um, But The Matrix pulled on other parts of it. I don't remember getting all (laughs) dusty in my eyes while I was watching The Matrix at any point. Me neither. I just remember rewinding a couple of times and being like, Jesus, that was fucking cool. Um, So, let's go over what I looked at and we forgot to talk about the other night, which uh, was we did some comparison with Metacritic, uh, which is an aggregator that 
takes a bunch of reviews from all over uh, critical sources or user sources and aggregates them together into an over overall rating. So this is just for entertainment value if you're still listening. In number six, everyone agreed. iRobot. Yeah. That does not surprise me at all. <laughs> no, I mean, really. Fuck iRobot. Fuck it. I was trying to say some nice things about Alex Proyas, but uh, mm -hmm. yeah, that movie doesn't, doesn't, doesn't lie. Now, in fifth place, Metacritic users said Robocop which agrees with both Larry and myself. The Metacritic critical aggregate score for Moon was 67%. Moon was in fifth place on Metacritic's critic list. Wow, that surprises me. But it was tied with Robocop. Okay. So Robocop and Moon, same quality of movie according to <laughs> the critics. I guess so. Uh, uh, I'm going to have to go ahead and disagree. <laughs> yes. So... Fourth place, we said 2001. As we know, Metacritic Critics, fourth place is a tie between Robocop and Moon. Right. Uh, and for the users, we've got a three-way tie here. They say Robocop, Terminator, and 2001 all deserve an 8.3 out of 10. Interesting. Yes, with uh, iRobot at 7.1. The critics in third place say The Matrix. Uh, users say 2001. And in second place, the critics said The Terminator, 89%, um, which is a little higher than either Larry or I put it on the, on the list. Users said Moon. Wow. So Metacritic users give Moon much more credit than the critics. The critics do. That's interesting. I think the critics are out to lunch on that one. <laughs> I think Moon is, is a beautiful, I, brilliant movie. I do think that it's also the type of movie that people will like rent a sci-fi movie. Ooh, what's this moon? And expect something a little bit more action-oriented or a little bit more, I don't know, scary. And, you know, they get this meditative thinker or sci-fi piece and turn it off halfway through. So I'm actually heartened to hear <laughs> that, the, that the users the people like moon. speak on behalf of moon. But I'm perplexed as to the critical response. It, me too. That's the main reason I wanted to talk about this was I thought it was interesting. Uh, first place, the users say The Matrix. Yeah. So Metacritic users are with me on the top two. And the critics, the critics say, say 2001, 2001, obviously. Yeah. But yeah, critics but just love the Kubrick. Critics beyond Kubrick's parts. So there we have it. Metacritic. <laughs> the, uh, the users are pretty close to our list, even though they're you know Swiss on the whole middle of the list. Everything's tied. Yeah. It's all neutral. And the know. critics are just out to lunch, with, with the exception of iRobot. <laughs> I don't know what happened to them. I guess if I've reviewed this many movies on a podcast, I'm something of a critic. But I have to say that I'm glad that I'm on the side of the common people, as it yes. were, than the hoity-toity critics in this point. And yeah, again, we're not hoity-toity. Go ahead and watch <laughs> iRobot. No judgment. I watched it. 7.1 does seem high to me. I, I, even if it wasn't a, a failing grade, I, that, like 7 is like a watch. That's, that's a recommend. Yes, like, although the critics said 5.9 out of 10. Right. Right. So the you know even meaner to iRobot, I'd probably give it a five. Yeah, yeah. It's visually strong. The script is neither here nor there. You know, yeah. it's just not Asimov. So, mm -hmm. so best to put it from our minds. Yes. I don't. I don't think we'll hear about this movie again on Rank and Review. No, no. I the, I can't imagine a, a scenario where I will need to revisit iRobot. If it, a career retrospective on Will Smith is not high on my priority list yet, so uh, which is funny because I bet if you went back through here and counted mentions of movie titles, iRobot would iRobot. be on top of the list. 
iRobot. 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 Is there anything else you want to say before we wrap this shit up? No, I'm good to go. Let's let these good people go back to their lives. Yeah. And, uh... Go feed your cat. We may be returning to space again someday. Mmm, the human adventure <laughs> is just beginning. And there it is. Episode 38 is done. You can send your feedback to rank and review at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W. Let me know what I got right. Let me know what I got wrong. Any feedback you'd like to give, I would welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in to Rank and Review. Please do tell that other film freak in your life about the show. And hope to catch you next time.